John chapter 17. This is a prayer of our Lord Jesus Christ to his Father. And we only want to read a couple of verses, verse 23 through to the end of the chapter, verse 26. We read verse 21 to get the context and the flow. The Lord Jesus prays for his people and he asks that they all may be one as thy Father art in me and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me and the glory which thou givest me I have given them that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that thou hast sent me, and hast loved them, as thou hast loved me. Father, I will that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which thou hast given me, for thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world hath not known thee, but I have known thee. These have known that thou hast sent me, and I have declared unto them thy name, and will declare it, that the love wherewith thou hast loved me may be in them, and I in them. Now, if you have a pen and a piece of paper, it would be advisable that you use them. And if you don't, uh, I would encourage you to get the tape recordings because there's no way that you will remember everything that you'll hear tonight because I'm going to cover an awful lot of ground. But to do justice to this study, I feel it is necessary. We're considering tonight uh, what is really a title which is an umbrella term, Oneness Pentecostalism. And those who really come under the category of this definition could be the churches which call themselves Jesus-only churches. Some of them uh, title themselves the Apostolic Pentecostals. Others uh, acknowledge that they are belonging to the Oneness Movement. There are others who call themselves the Jesus Name Movement. And of course, in our own province here in Ulster, and indeed in Ireland, uh, the Oneness Pentecostal Movement is found in the Church of God in Ulster. Now, do not misunderstand uh, who those folk are this evening. That is not the Church of God that belonged to the General Brethren Movement, which sometimes are called the Need of Truth organization. It is not they, though they call themselves the Church of God. Neither it is, is it Armstrongism, founded by Herbert Armstrong, which did believe the Oneness Doctrine, but I'm led to believe that they have testified that they have recanted that doctrine and many other of their heretic doctrines. I'm not too sure of the validity of all that. I haven't had time to study it. But nevertheless, that's what they claim. What we're considering tonight in our own context of Ulster is the Church of God. Uh, the most local one to us would be the Church of God at Glenmacken, but there are several right across the province. Now, let me say before I go on any further, it is not my desire tonight to offend anyone. And in fact, many of you will have friends and families that belong perhaps to Glenmacken or to other churches of God. I certainly have some very dear and good friends belong to this movement. But as I preach the word of God, as I hope that you would expect of me always, I must preach the truth irrespective of persons, whoever those persons may be. 
And even in reaction to the announcement of this subject in the Belfast Telegraph, I received messages which really asked the question, how can you lump oneness Pentecostalism in among all the other subjects that you're considering in this Strongholds of Satan series, Confusing Cults and False Faiths? The reason why that question comes is because often people view the Church of God in Ulster and oneness Pentecostalism in general as an orthodox group of people. Because they do appear to a casual glance to be orthodox in their belief because, particularly, of their strict monotheism. They believe in one true and living God. And that is the foundation of the oneness faith and the oneness teaching. And in fact, unlike many of the other cults and false faiths, they do very strenuously defend the fact that our Lord Jesus Christ is God manifest in flesh. There's no doubt to them of the deity of our Lord Jesus Christ. So right away, uh, to the appearance of many Christians, they don't see anything wrong with the theology. On the contrary, many are even attracted by the theology of the oneness movement. But the fact of the matter is, we must look at the claims of the oneness movement itself and the Church of God at Glenmacken, in fact, styles itself in its advertisements and even on its website, as I quote, a friendly, evangelical, Pentecostal church. A friendly, evangelical, Pentecostal church. Now, whilst it certainly is friendly, and I have no issue with them on that, and uh, it caters tremendously for family and, and children and so on, is the rest of the claim to be both Pentecostal and evangelistic or evangelical is that unauthentic claim? Well, certainly in their understanding of the ministry of the Holy Spirit, they could be classed, in a sense, as Pentecostal. But the fact of the matter is, if you study church history, you find that the oneness movement and the Church of God differs significantly from classic Pentecostalism, on account particularly of its belief in the Godhead, its oneness doctrine regarding the nature of God. Now, most people look back in time to the modern Pentecostal movement uh, having its beginning in the year 1901 in a chapel prayer meeting in Topeka, Kansas, led by this man on the screen, Charles Parham, who was a teacher at Bethel Bible College. And later, after that 1901 meeting, in 1906, there was the Pentecostal experience in this particular church that you see here, uh, speaking of tongues and baptism of the Spirit, as they claimed, that burst on the scene during what has been said to be a revival meeting in an African-American Baptist church in Azusa Street in Los Angeles, California. And these were said to be the beginnings of the Pentecostal movement, and Pentecostal preachers and doctrines spread from that moment very rapidly. Now, the history of the oneness movement comes out of Pentecostalism, for in 1913, one very popular Pentecostal teacher by the name of R.E. McAllister of Toronto, Ontario, began teaching that the doctrine of the Trinity was untrue. He began to teach that Jesus was the only God, and the three manifestations, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, were just uh, manifestations of the Lord Jesus. He also taught that baptism should be done correctly in the name of Jesus only. And in fact, he went as far to claim that through Acts chapter 2 and verse 38, where it says, Then Peter said unto them, Repent, and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Through that text, God gave him a revelation 
A new revelation that people should be baptized in the name of Jesus only and not in the formula of the Trinity in Matthew 28, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Well, from that teaching, uh, other preachers joined uh, McAllister. And by 1916, oneness views were being expounded by some of the ministers in the Assemblies of God movement, which is one of the largest, if not the largest, Pentecostal denomination in America. Now, to the complement of the AOG movement, they strongly rejected the doctrine of the oneness. And in fact, their denominational council that year, 1916, uh, adopted a very Trinitarian stance in its statement of faith, and more than 160 of those who confess the oneness doctrine, ministry, ministers among the assemblies of God, uh, were expelled. And those 160 expelled ministers formed alliances in order to propagate this oneness doctrine. One of the major alliances was the Pentecostal assemblies of the world. So, in a strict sense, they couldn't lump themselves among the Pentecostal denomination, although they are somewhat Pentecostal in their doctrine. But let's come a little bit nearer to home to assess the historical situation, how the Church of God movement came to, into being here in Ulster. Well, according uh, to, to this publication, which is the Jubilee Booklet, celebrating 50 years from 1940 to 1990 of the Church of God movement here in Ulster, the roots of the movement here are to be found in those men who attended what is called in the book the Belfast Tabernacle and Bible College in the 1930s. Among them were two names, which people in the Church of God will know well, James Forsyth and Gordon McGee. And this is a photograph of Gordon McGee. Now, after the demise of this Bible college due to the difficult financial situation in the 30s, the men wanted to continue fellowship with one another, and eventually they rented a hall in Carnforth Street, which you'll be familiar with, off the Albert Bridge Road. To cut a long story short, the first leaders of that particular fellowship were Forsyth and McGee. Now, I hasten to add that at this time, the movement was Trinitarian. was Pentecostal, but it was also Trinitarian. It was moving among Elam circles, Pentecostal churches taking missions uh, around our province. And uh, eventually it started other works from Carnforth Street around the province in Balamone and Armagh, and of course in Devon Parade, which later would come the, become the Glenmacken Church. We might ask the question, well, what happened? If they began as Trinitarian and Pentecostal, what happened in their doctrine? How did this oneness doctrine, Jesus-only teaching, enter? Well, the divergence begins in the 1950s. Gordon McGee traveled to the United States, I think, for work purposes, and whilst he was away, the denomination started to thrive here in Ulster, in Craven Street, off the Shankle, and Lisburn Road, and in Whitewell. And during the mid-50s, McGee returned from the United States to help to develop and to disciple these new congregations. But he brought with him from the States this new oneness doctrine, which was foreign to the people in the province, not just Pentecostal, but Christianity at large. The sad story is that all the churches, as far as I am aware, embraced it. And that is the reason why it is in the churches to this day, and they have Gordon McGee to thank for it. So we're going to ask the question tonight, what is this doctrine of oneness? And perhaps more importantly to us this evening, why should every Christian have a problem with it? Now, there are several doctrines 
for us to consider tonight in the Church of God and Oneness Movement. Uh, all showing, I believe, their claim to be evangelical, to be a dubious one. But we're going to take the most time looking at this particular teaching of the Oneness Doctrine this evening. Now, what is the Oneness Doctrine? Well, the Oneness Doctrine is simply the belief that there are no distinctions in the Godhead. That though the Bible speaks of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, those are just designations for representations of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, Jesus is the Father, Jesus is the Son, Jesus is the Holy Spirit, Jesus is all three. The belief espouses that in eternity past that Christ was a unipersonal God. In other words, there was no Father as such or Spirit, there was just the Lord Jesus Christ. And in time, Christ begot a human Son, the human Jesus who was born in Bethlehem. Let me break it down a little bit for you to help you to understand. They differentiate in this way. In time, the divine nature of Christ became known as God the Father. That part of Jesus that was God became known as God the Father. But the human nature of Jesus, his flesh, is designated as the Son of God. So his divine nature is God the Father. His bodily human nature is God the Son. And who is the Holy Spirit, you may ask? Well, that is simply Jesus in a spiritual form dwelling in the midst of his people. And they explain it this way. In the same way as Jesus is prophet and priest and king, so the Lord Jesus Christ is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They are different offices of the one person, Jesus. Jesus is the Father. Jesus is the Son. Jesus is the Holy Spirit. Now, because of this, they actually deny the eternal sonship, which is a, a doctrine taught, I believe, in the New Testament. They tell us that sonship, the concept of it, only relates to the human nature. You can only have a son if you're in humanity. And therefore, because this is a, a human term, it, it speaks as a figure of time. It also speaks of inferiority. The Lord Jesus Christ could not have had this before he came into humanity, it was, in other words, part of his humiliation coming to, to live among men as a man. I believe that that is very contrary to the teaching of the Word of God, as we shall see later. But can I just uh, shoot an arrow of warning across everyone's bow here this evening? I believe the downfall of the Oneness Pentecostal movement is simply, first and foremost, this. They have tried to explain the inexplicable. They have tried to explain the inexplicable, that is, God himself. And they have tried to explain God to the satisfaction of man's intellect. And right away, therein they fall down. Now, I am, make no apology for being a Trinitarian, but Trinitarians would not claim that their understanding of the Godhead is complete or exhausted because it can never be. Because the first man to understand God has made himself God himself. And the first fault, if I could lay any, and I'll lay plenty tonight at the, the, the door of oneness Pentecostalism, is that in order to achieve a clearer and simpler understanding of the Godhead, they have adopted an imbalanced view. 
It is a simpler understanding of the Godhead. But I would say it has become a simplistic view of it because it does not deal with all the facts. Indeed, it omits and it contradicts scriptural facts regarding the Godhead in order to create an argument. In fact, uh, two Lord's Days ago, an individual, I think from the Glen Mackin Church, uh, left in this tract for my benefit in order that I should read it before I preach on it tonight as if it would make any difference really. But this tract, as you can see, Wheel of Prophecy, Who is God, shows that the Lord Jesus is described in these many ways throughout the whole of Scripture. But again, this tract is only showing you the one aspect of the deity and divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ. And if I had the opportunity, I could produce a similar tract, which was actually a sign that was used by the early church, which is a more complete understanding of the Godhead, just to show you not only what the Godhead is, but what the Godhead is not, that the Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is not the Father, and, and so on. You see, if you only show half the picture, you will only have half the understanding. And not only do oneness teachers uh, misrepresent what the clear issues are, but from our perspective, they also misrepresent what Trinitarianism is and what Trinitarians believe. And in fact, I could only say that, that they emit in their teachings anti-Trinitarian propaganda that is nothing more than straw doll argumentation. You know what that is? You set up an argument that you're going to oppose, which isn't the real argument at all, and you set to knocking it down. And let me begin on, on that note. And let me dispose of some of these misrepresentations of Trinitarianism. Please note these down if you have a pen. The first is, the Oneness Movement and the Church of God say that the Trinity is, I quote Mr. McGee, the Rome Three God Theory. It is the Rome Three God Theory. Now, it is true that Roman Catholics believe in the Trinity. But the fact of the matter is, as you study church history, you will not find that it was the Roman Catholic Church that added the doctrine of the Trinity to Christianity. It has added many things, but that is one thing that it is not guilty of. In fact, the doctrine of the Trinity, I will show you tonight, can be traced back to the Apostles' doctrine, which is the teaching of the Word of God. So that is a fallacy. And then, of course, there is this idea that it's the Romish three-God theory. But Trinitarianism does not believe in three gods. That is a myth of the Church of God movement. For the belief in three gods is not Trinitarianism. The belief in three gods is tritheism, which believes that there are three separate gods. But Trinitarians are monotheists. They believe in one true and living God. As Deuteronomy 6 says, that there is one God. And though we believe in one God, we also believe that he has been revealed to us in Holy Scripture, in the unity of that Godhead, in three distinct persons, yet one substance being God. Now, I acknowledge that's baffling. It's mind-boggling. We cannot understand it. But the fact of the matter is, we are not asked completely to understand it. It is revealed in God's word, and we are asked to accept it and to believe it. Second straw doll argument that they use is that the word Trinity is not found in the Bible. And of course, they're right. 
But does it matter that the word Trinity is not found in the Bible if the teaching of the triune Godhead is found therein? The fact of the matter is, one, as Pentecostals use the word millennium, they use the word theocracy, they use the word incarnation like we do, and none of those are found in the Bible, but we believe in them nevertheless. Because the truths of them are found in the Scripture. What the name is does not really matter. The teaching is in the Word of God. So that's another false argument that you should reject the Trinity because the Word is not in the Bible. And here's a third straw doll argument that they use. They say Trinitarians teach that you will see three gods in heaven. Now that is a lie. Trinitarians do not teach that. In fact, Gordon McGee, and I will show you plenty of his book tonight, he actually says on page 16 of his book, Is Jesus in the Godhead or Is the Godhead in Jesus? Do Trinitarians imagine that there are two spirits in the Godhead, namely the Father, the so-called first person who is termed a spirit, and the Holy Spirit, the so-called third person? There are not two spirits in the Godhead because there is one spirit. Does that confuse you? Do we believe in two spirits? Well, herein is the ignorance. And I say that politely, the ignorance of the Church of God and one Pentecostal movement regarding not only the English translation of the Word of God, but the original languages. Many will know that the authorized version is wrong in its translation of John 4, 24, because it should read, in the, as it does in the Greek, God is spirit, not is a spirit. God is spirit. And it is speaking not essentially of a person being God as a spirit, but it's talking about the nature of God, that he is not material, that he is not physical like us. Colossians 1.15 tells us God is invisible. So does 1 Timothy 1.17. John 1.18 says no man has ever seen God. 1 John 4.12 says the same. 1 Timothy 6.16, nor shall any man ever see God. It is an invention of the church of God to say that Trinitarians believe you'll see three gods in heaven. God is spirit. Now, when we move on, we want to look this evening at Gordon McGee's book. And the reason why we're going to look in depth at it is, is because I don't want to misrepresent the argument of the church of God or oneness Pentecostalism. And in order not to do that, I'm going to use this book extensively. But let's start with the scriptures. I want us to turn to Genesis chapter 1. And I want to start with the Old Testament. And I hope that you'll give me the time and the liberty tonight to really explore this subject this evening. I'll not be able to give you an exhaustive teaching on the doctrine of the Trinity, although that will be inferred in everything that we say. But I want to show you the fallacy of the doctrine of the oneness that the Church of God teaches. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26. And right away we're going to see here that the Old Testament does not present a unipersonal God as the oneness Pentecostal movement says. Chapter 1 and verse 26. And God said, let us, plural, make man in our image, plural, after our likeness, plural, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the fowls of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. Now, right away, the church of God will say, well, that's the angels. God is saying to the angels, let us make man in our image. But I ask you the question, did the angels and God make man? 
Did the angels help God out in the creation? And I ask you again, did the angels and God make man in the image of God and in the image of the angels? He did not. In fact, in verse 27, clearly, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him, male and female created he them. It is very clear that God made man in his own image. And the plural, us and our, is signifying the plurality and the personality of the Godhead, right back at the very beginning of creation. Now, maybe you think this is an isolated proof text. Let's turn to Genesis 11, to the Tower of Babel. And verse 7, Go to, let us go down, and there confound our language, that they may not understand one another's speech. Let us go down. And let us confound their language that they may not understand their speech. Now, throughout this whole story of the Tower of Babel, though the oneness Pentecostal movement say again God is speaking to the angels, there are no mentions of angels at all in this portion. In fact, contextually, it says that the Lord came down. And further on in verse 8 and verse 9, the Lord came down. So right away, we see that the plural is used of the Godhead. And the angels don't come into it at all. Now, if we're to go back to Genesis 1 and verse 1, we see in the literary structure here of the creation narrative that it also reflects the triune Godhead in chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was God, there is God, and the Spirit of God hovered above the waters, verse 2. And then it is the Word of God throughout this chapter that is bringing creation into being. And you would almost think that this was a replica, which I believe it is in the mind of John, of John chapter 1, where Christ is portrayed as being God, the Word who is God, but he is also the Word that is with God. He is the one who has brought creation into being. He is God's Word. He is God's light. He is God's creative instrument. We also see the triune Godhead in literature in the Old Testament in the Aaronic blessing. Turn with me to Numbers chapter 6. Numbers chapter 6, verse 24. You're familiar with this. The Lord bless thee and keep thee. The Lord make his face to shine upon thee and be gracious unto thee. The Lord lift up his countenance upon thee and give thee peace. These three verses outlining a, a triune blessing. And then we come uh, to Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 3 where you have the angelic hosts who cry, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, the whole earth is filled with his glory. Which is also echoed in Revelation chapter 4 and verse 8. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, the whole earth is filled with his glory. A triune literary usage. I want us to turn to Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9, for here is one of the chief proof texts of the oneness movement. Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6, speaking prophetically of the Lord Jesus. For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Right away they say, there it is. Christ, prophetically, is designated as being the everlasting Father. Now, if you look at your margin, if you have a good marginal reference Bible, you will see that that everlasting Father can be translated Father of Eternity. It literally means in the Hebrew, one over eternity. 
or the eternal one. And I ask the question, does that mean in an Old Testament context, God the Father? Now, clearly it doesn't. Clearly it's speaking of the eternality of God and it has nothing to do with the Son's relationship with the Father and vice versa. It's speaking again of the eternal nature of God. It's not speaking of his designation of Jesus being God the Father. And this is the same mistake that the oneness movement make with John chapter 10 and verse 30 where Jesus says, I and the Father are one. They say, there you are. The Lord Jesus is calling himself the Father. But note, he does not say, I am the Father. He says, I and the Father am one in nature and in substance. We are God. In fact, he uses in this word one, the neuter. In other words, he's saying that we are substance with one another. I and the Father are one in substance. He would have used the masculine if he meant that he was the Father, but he's talking about the nature of, of being God. And whilst he says he is one with the Father, he distinguishes himself from the Father. I and the Father are one. Now, of course, the Old Testament is only a partial revelation, and the persons of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are made more distinct and clearly distinguished in the New Testament. In fact, over 200 times in the New Testament, Jesus speaks of the Father other than himself as another person, over 200 times. In fact, over 50 times in the New Testament, the Father and the Son are distinguished in the same verse. Now, let me show you some of these verses this evening. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3 and verse 16. And here we see the three persons of the Godhead distinguished. And Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water, and lo, the heavens were opened unto him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him. And lo, a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Now, the explanation that the oneness movement gives of this is embarrassing. Because some even go as far as saying that the Spirit did not come upon the Lord Jesus Christ. It was only a symbol of the Spirit. But here we have the Son in the water being baptized, the Father speaking from heaven, and the Holy Spirit descending as a dove upon the Lord Jesus. And all the gospel writers say that the Spirit descended on the Lord Jesus Christ. It says, Jesus saw the Holy Spirit descending as a dove. The question I must ask the oneness movement is, is the voice that spoke from heaven the divine nature of Christ? Was Christ, as it were, throwing his voice into heaven and out again to speak these words? There are other examples how the oneness movement contradicts scripture. Another example is in regard to the sonship of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's spend a bit of time on that in regard to his eternal sonship. They believe that the sonship is the human part of the Lord Jesus, the flesh. I'll give you a quotation from McGee's book, The Son is the Flesh. Look at it. What part of him was the Son? The angel told Mary, Mary, that holy thing which shall be born of thee is the Son. Paul told the Galatians, God sent forth a Son made of a woman. The Son is the flesh or humanity. They're very clear on that belief. The Son is the flesh. Yet the book of Hebrews abounds with evidence against this. Turn with me to the book of Hebrews for a moment. Turn to chapter 1. 
And verse 1. God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in times past unto the fathers by the prophets, hast in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. When did the Son make the worlds? You don't mean to tell me that the Son made the worlds before Bethlehem, do you? Before he was born into humanity. Because it says clearly that the Son made the worlds. God made the worlds through the Son. Was it after Bethlehem? And then they will say in retort to that, that, that question, well, he made them through the one who would become the Son. But if you look at verse 8, it clearly says, But unto the Son God said, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. He said it clearly to the Son. Maybe that's not enough for you. Turn with me to Hebrews 5. For here we have this text, Hebrews 5 and verse 7. Who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death and was heard and that he feared. Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. Now you might say, what does that prove? Though he was son. Literally, though he was son, yet learned he obedience. Well, that is in Greek what's called the concessive clause, which simply means in spite of him being son, he learned obedience. In spite of him being the son of God, divine, he learned obedience. Now, if sonship just means humanity, what does this verse mean? Because it simply doesn't just mean because he was the son or as the son he learned obedience. Here it is clearly referring to his deity and concessively showing even though he was the son of God, yet learned he obedience. It's proving the opposite, that sonship signifies deity. If you turn to verse 3 of chapter 7, we have it in another figure. This figure, Old Testament, of Melchizedek who is a type of Christ. He is a type simply because his priesthood will, uh, would seem to never cease. Verse 3, without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like unto the Son of God, abideth a priest continually. How was Melchizedek made unto, like unto the Son of God? He did not have beginning of days nor end of days. The Son of God is without beginning or ending. Yet the church of God teaches that he had a beginning as a son in Bethlehem. And it even goes as far to teach from 1 Corinthians 15, 27 and 26 that his sonship will have an end when he offers up to God the kingdom, even though the very verse tells us that he himself as son will again be subjected to the Father. And in chapter 7 again in verse 28 we see that the Lord's priesthood is an unchangeable one. For the law maketh men high priests which have infirmity, but the word of the oath which was since the law maketh the Son who is consecrated forevermore. He has an unchangeable priesthood. Now let me illustrate for you the devious argumentation of the Church of God on this very issue. Page 17 of McGee's book, it says, Trinitarians teach that Christ had two fathers classic example of the confusion of thought implicit in Trinitarian belief is seen 
when under questioning, they are obliged to confess that Christ must have had two fathers, namely the first person of the Trinity to whom he prayed, they say, and the Holy Spirit who performed the miracle act of paternity in the virgin womb. And maybe you're sitting there thinking, well, is that not right? This is how they convince people with this false argumentation. But what they are doing is they are confusing the divine sonship of Christ with the human sonship of Christ. They are not one and the same thing. The divine sonship of Christ is begotten of God eternally. Where the human sonship of Christ was begotten in the womb of Mary by the Holy Spirit in time. It is not one and the same thing, no matter what Gordon McGee may say. Do not confuse the divine sonship and the human sonship. And then not only... Do they uh, contradict the scriptures in regard to the sonship, but they contradict the scriptures in regard to the cross. In fact, on page 28 of McGee's book, we read this, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Would to God Trinitarians would carefully consider the logical conclusions of their objections before making them. Think of it. If Jesus was actually forsaken by God, then he is not God. The Trinitarian explanation of this verse, namely that here we see one divine person forsaking another, compels us to ask where then is their professed belief in the unity of the Godhead. And he goes on to say, if Jesus was actually forsaken of God, then he is not God. But God did not forsake him. Jesus only felt forsaken. They quote John 16, 32, Behold, the hour cometh, yea, is now come, that ye shall be scattered every man to his own, and shall leave me alone. And yet I am not alone, because the Father is with me. And, and they forget, very conveniently, to admit that that was said before Calvary. Yet McGee states, he meant to be sin-bearer. He had to feel God forsaken. When Christ said, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me, what he meant was, as our sin bearer, he had to feel forsaken. But Mark, Matthew 27, 46, Christ is recorded not as saying, I feel forsaken, but my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? I urge you to think about this just for a moment or two. If Jesus Christ said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me, that means that his feeling to be forsaken was a mistaken feeling because he wasn't really forsaken. If he was only meant to feel forsaken, that means he wasn't forsaken on the cross. That means Christ on the cross entertained wrong ideas. That means in the midst of man's redemption, he had mistaken feelings about what was going on. He felt forsaken, yet he wasn't forsaken. And I say to you, do you know what the implications of that are for us? If he only felt forsaken, you can only feel saved. Can't really be saved. And then Isaiah 53, of course, tells us the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. The Lord was pleased to bruise him. And I ask the question, was this one divine part of Jesus laying punishment on another divine part, on his human part, and you know what it also means? It means that the part of Christ that actually bore our sins was not God. And we are agreed that God cannot die. And this is the mystery of Calvary. As one has said, the man that died 
was God, but yet God did not die. And as Luther said, God forsaking God, who can understand it? But please do not deny what the scriptures do teach in trying to explain it. Was your sin only put on half of Jesus? Was it only laid on his human nature, on his human part? They deny the scriptures in regard to the cross. And then in regard to Christ's prayers, they also contradict the scriptures. Because we ask the question, well, when Christ was praying, was he praying to himself? And McGee answers the question, no, he wasn't. But then, in fact, he goes on to teach in his book that he was. In page 11, he recites this conversation with the Trinitarian. And the Trinitarian says, as you see, the Trinitarian brother asked then, did he not pray to himself? No, he did not pray to himself. What did he do? I replied, in his human nature, he prayed to his divine nature. Well, that is praying to himself. You can have it that way. But if Jesus were no ordinary person, I would agree with you that it is praying to himself. But Jesus was not ordinary. Jesus was extraordinary. Jesus was God and man. If Jesus Christ had a dual nature, why then should we think it incredible that he should perform a dual role? He even contradicts himself. He is saying that Christ's human nature prayed to his divine nature. However, from the reading in John 17 that we read, if you read the rest of the chapter, the human nature of Christ as he prays calls himself I. Yet when he addresses his father, my father, as he says, he addresses the father as thou. And he implies in both that these are two personalities, that he is not praying to himself or a divine part in himself. He is praying to another. We see this in regard not only to Christ's prayers, but Christ's commission. Because Christ is sent, and he declared that he was sent from the Father. He left the Father, and he was going back to the Father. In John 16, 28, he said, I came forth from the Father, and am come into the world again. I leave the world and go to the Father. Two personalities are implied in saying, I am going to the Father. And I ask the question, if the divine part of Christ is the Father, why is it that he never uses the word I? When he refers to the Father. Why does he always use the word you? And why does he never speak as the Father. And say I sent the Son. Because he didn't send the Son. In fact in Gethsemane you see it again. Two personalities. He says not my will but thine be done. The existence of two wills. Therefore there must be two personalities. To leave someone, to talk to another, to have a different will from another, insinuates two personalities. And some of the particularly troublesome texts to oneness believers is those that speak of the love that we were reading from in John 17, the love that existed between the two persons of Father and Son. How can two natures love one another? Natures cannot love one another. Natures cannot speak to one another. Only persons can love one another and people can speak to one another and people can leave one another and go towards one another. Here's a text for you if you ever want one to present to a oneness believer. John 6, 38. Listen carefully to this. John 6, 38. I came down from heaven not to do mine own will but the will of him that sent me. Now here he is not speaking as a mere man. Because the oneness people believe that it's only his humanity that is the man part. He's speaking 
of coming down from heaven. But his human nature did not come down from heaven. So even when he's speaking of God, he distinguishes himself from the Father. I came down from heaven, not to do my own will, distinguishing from the Father, but the will of him that sent me. John 8, here's a classic one. Turn with me to this one, please. How the Lord designates between the Father and the Son here. Verse 17, he says, It is also written in your law that the testimony of two men is true. I am one that beareth witness of myself, and the Father that sent me beareth witness of me. Now, either he's being dishonest with the Old Testament, or he doesn't understand the Godhead himself. Because he is designating he and the Father as two witnesses, two people whose witness is true. And all you need to do is look at John 1 and verse 1 and verse 2 to show that Christ was God by nature, yet he was also distinct from God in the sense that the Word was with God and the Word was God. And John reiterates the same fact in 1 John 1 verse 2, for the life was manifested and we have seen it and bear witness and show unto you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested unto us. The eternal life that was with the Father and was manifested unto us. Now what does the church of God have to say about that? John 1.1. 1, 1. I can well remember a dear brother quoting this verse to me to prove that Jesus, the Word, was a dis distinct divine person from the Father. I asked him, who is your God? He answered, the Trinity. Now here we see the devious argumentation of the church of God. I said, let us read the verse in the light of your answer. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with, was with the Trinity, and the Word was the Trinity. Now, the Trinity is not God. The Trinity is an understanding of the nature of God. And what this verse is talking about when it talks about the Word being God is the nature of God and the substance of God, not the personalities of God. And in his devious argumentation, he goes down and then he says, the meaning of the verse became clear to him. And it is this, the Word was God. Now mark this. Any idea that the Word was distinct personality from God is destroyed by John when he emphatically declares, and the Word was God. I know of no stronger oneness verse in the whole Bible. How can we make a difference of person between God and his Word? Now that is utter nonsense. You could equally say that the statement and the word was God was destroyed by John's statement, the word was with God. But they are the two sides of the coin that the oneness belief denies. In fact, Philippians 2 verse 6 says, Christ was in the form of God in eternity past. He thought it not robbery to be equal with God. He claimed to be God, and we know that the Pharisees were going to stone him for claiming to be such, but never did he claim to be the Father. He may have claimed that the Father was revealing him in the essence of his divinity and deity, but he never claimed to be the Father. The Scripture always distinguishes him from the Father. And in John 14, many years ago, a well-known Church of God pastor then said that he had never heard a oneness advocate explain this verse satisfactorily. John 14, 23, that's maybe why he's converted to Trinitarianism himself. John 14, 23, Jesus answered and said unto him, If a man love me, he will keep my words, 
and my Father will love him, and we will come unto him, we will come unto him, and make our abode with him. In regard to his commission, they contradict the scriptures. In regard to the Spirit, they do the same. In John 14, verse 16, Jesus said, I will pray the Father, and he will give another comforter that he may abide with you forever. Jesus is not the Spirit. In fact, the Spirit is sent by Jesus and sent by the Father. If you want the verse for that, John 16, 7, 8, 13, and 14. John 16, 7, 8, 13, and 14. In fact, you know what this one, this teaching is? It is an ancient heresy known in the early church as Sabellianism. It was also known as modalism. It was found late first, early second century in the church. And not as the church of God claims was it introduced in the year 325 AD at the Council of Nicaea by Constantine. That is a lie. In fact, the early Christian apologists and fathers, many of them quoted their belief in the doctrine of the Trinity and indeed in apologetics defended the doctrine of the Trinity against some of these self-same errors. The doctrine of the Trinity is a profound mystery. But if it was a human invention, man who invented it would be able to explain it. But man can't explain it because it is the Godhead. Now very quickly, if you give me 10 or 15 minutes, the salvation and baptism teaching of the church of God is also erroneous. Their claim to be evangelical falls flat when we consider this because they teach us that we must be baptized in the name of Jesus according to Acts 2.38 that I gave you at the beginning, not the formula commanded by the Lord Jesus in Matthew 28. Now, their aversion to the Trinitarian baptismal formula is only due to their aversion to the doctrine of the Trinity itself, I believe, and they're failing to recognize that in the historical book of the Acts of the Apostles, historical book, I hasten to add, when baptism in the name of Jesus is mentioned, that phrase in the name of in Scripture often means in the authority or by the authority of. And it's nothing to do with a baptismal formula. It's to do with the authority of the one who is giving the command to baptize in the gospel's name. In fact, evidence from the Didache, which was the teaching of the twelve apostles that was passed down into this writing of the late first uh, century, early second century, it is clear that baptism was in the triune name of the Godhead. Justin Martyr in AD 153 uh, declares the same. Yet the church of God to this day will rebaptize you if you were baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. In J.A. Conley's book, Water Baptism, Obligatory or Optional, that's the pastor of Glenmacken Church of God, he says in page 10, baptism is essential to full and complete New Testament gospel experience. Page 20, he says, faith and baptism are inseparables. Page 23, rhetorically, he asks the question, is baptism essential to salvation? The only answer is that baptism is essential to a full gospel experience as any other relevant Bible experience is essential to salvation. Now, as John Montgomery, whose book I recommend to you and is on the bookstall, on Cecil's bookstall tonight, in his critique, as he says, all these statements come perilously close to baptismal regeneration. And whilst we 
do agree on the importance of baptism in the New Testament, indeed how intrinsic it was to gospel preaching in the early church, we must maintain that salvation is by grace through faith and not of works. That's what Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 teach. And then they have also erroneous teaching on soul sleep and annihilation. Do you know this? They misuse and misquote certain obscure passages from the Old Testament and they believe from it, mainly the book of Ecclesiastes, that the soul sleeps until the resurrection. And some of them seem to also believe of the impenitent, those who die without Christ, that they will be annihilated. Conditional immortality is taught. Yet what did Paul teach? We are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and present with the Lord, at home with the Lord. The dying thief was told, today shalt thou be with me in paradise. I don't know what they do with Luke chapter 16, a man in hell and a man in paradise. That disproves right away any doctrine of soul sleep and annihilationism. I don't have time to deal with this one, but there is the doctrines of British Israelism and food laws. I don't have time to go into this. Save to say what Oswald Saunders said in his book, Heresies in Ancient, Ancient and Modern. I quote him, The theory of British Israelism is not supported by any scientist historian or linguist of repute. It is nowhere to be found in the Bible. Regarding the food laws, I give you a warning. 1 Timothy 4, 3 and 4 tell us that false teachers will be characterized by these traits. Forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from meats which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. For every creature of God is good and nothing to be refused if it be received with thanksgiving. But meat commendeth us not, 1 Corinthians 8, 8, to God. For neither if we eat are we the better, neither if we eat not are we the worse. May I remind you of a statement that I gave you two studies ago when we looked at the Cuneites from Walter Martin in his book, The Kingdom of the Cults. He said, a cult or a false faith starts with a group of people gathered around someone's misinterpretation of the Bible. A group of people gathered around someone's misinterpretation of the Bible. Whether it's Gordon McGee's, whether it's Joseph Smith's, whether it's Brigham Young's, whatever the man's name may be matters not to me. If they plainly deny scripture in order to comply with their scheme, they are a false prophet. And I say to you this evening, and to the evangelical church at large, no matter how attractive their services may be, how crowded their church hours are and how seemingly successful their, their preaching is. Isaiah chapter 8 and verse 20 says to the law and to the testimony, if they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. There I rest my case.